Good morning, church. It is great to be together this morning. Uh, apparently, it was also great to be together at the Explore Retreat this past weekend. I had not seen that picture myself, so I don't think I even knew how incredible of an experience that had been. Uh, but uh, good to be together this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 33. For the past many weeks, we have been looking at the life of Jacob. And this morning, we are coming to a dramatic conclusion to the drama between Jacob and his brother Esau. So if you have your Bibles, you can read along with me. We'll be reading all of chapter 33, uh, and the words will be on the screen above me as well, and you can follow along in that way. Genesis chapter 33, beginning in verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, and Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. And the servants drew near, and they and all their children, and they bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I have met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard, even for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and seer. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booze for the livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on the way to Badan Aram. And he camped in this city. And from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. As I said earlier in this chapter, we see a dramatic end to what has been a long-standing drama between these two brothers. And while this end is dramatic it is even more so surprising. If you have been with us through our series in Genesis, you remember that that for the past 20 years, 
Jacob has been on the run from Esau because Esau has threatened to kill him for the way that he deceived him and he cheated him out of the family's inheritance. And so now, in Genesis 33, they meet again for the first time after 20 years. And it is dramatic. And it is surprising. And even more so, it is a wonderful picture to us of God's gracious work in our lives. My hope this morning is that God's word is going to give us confidence in him and affection for him for this coming week. Here's the the main idea I think that this passage is getting at this morning, is that God grants forgiveness to undeserving sinners, and that should cause us to worship. God's mercy grants forgiveness to undeserving sinners, and that should cause us to worship. And we're going to unpack this main idea by looking at three points this morning. First, we're going to look at the baggage of Jacob. Then we're going to look at the miraculous mercy of God. And then finally, the gospel of forgiveness. So point one, the baggage of Jacob. Our story begins in verse one, which says, Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. Now the point of this verse is to draw us into the drama of this moment for Jacob. In Scripture, when you see the word behold, it means pay attention. It means think about what is happening right now and and feel the weight of this moment. And the weight of this moment is this. Jacob is seeing before him an army of 400 men. And this army is led by his brother, who he had betrayed 20 years earlier. And for the past 20 years, Jacob has been on the run because the last time he saw his brother, Esau said to him, I am going to kill you. And if you were with us last week, you saw in chapter 32 that by all indications, that is what Esau is coming to do. There's not really a reason to bring an army of 400 men uh, if you're planning a fun family get-together, right? (laughs) Esau is coming for revenge. And so when it says in verse 1, Behold, Esau was approaching with 400 men. It is calling us to put ourselves in Jacob's shoes and to feel the terror of this moment. It's like if you've ever seen a movie like like Braveheart or or one of those other medieval time war movies where you have a, a small group of travelers kind of traveling through this field and then all of a sudden on the hills around them they darken with armies suddenly appearing on the top right before they sweep down for attack, right? That's, that's what we're supposed to be feeling in this moment for Jacob. Now here's the thing though. In the last chapter, we remember that Jacob had this incredible faith-building encounter with God, right? Where he, where he wrestles with God. He sees more clearly than ever his need for God. And we see Jacob clinging in faith to God and, and not letting go until God blesses him and assures him of his faithfulness. And this was this deeply significant moment in Jacob's life where he, he encounters God face to face and is assured of God's blessing. And so you would think that, that Jacob after this would be, would be riding this, this spiritual high, right? Where, where no matter what he faced, he would face it with faith and he would face it with courage and trust in God. And, and in some ways, that, that is what we see Jacob doing. We see Jacob in humility and courage meet his brother He's he's not sure what's going to happen. He's not sure exactly why his brother is approaching, but he's willing to trust God with whatever happens. 
Jacob has prayed. He's taking action. He is seeking obedience. He is, he is headed towards the land that God has called him to, knowing that it's going to bring him face to face with his past. And we also know that Jacob has a lot of baggage from that past. Much of that is still affecting him today. He has 400 men coming over this hill because of his mistakes and his sin in the past. And so while, while part of Jacob is responding in faith and courage, part of the old Jacob still remains, still affecting him today. And we see this in verse 2 where, where as this army approaches, Jacob divides his family up by favoritism, which is an issue that's going to plague his family for years to come. And at the end of the chapter, we see that Jacob is actually still a little deceptive with his brother. In the end, Jacob doesn't quite follow God all the way to the land that God had called him toward. And church, I, I think this is, this is where we can see ourselves so much in Jacob and, and so much in this story. Because don't we also seek to follow God, but while still doing so wrestling with our past? carrying the baggage of our old selves with us, plagued often by the consequences of our old sins. There are areas of our lives where we are following Christ really well, and there are other areas of our life where, where we still need so much growth. Sometimes we feel like we've finally conquered this sin in our life, right? But then life hits, and we find ourselves falling right back into it. R.C. Sproul says of this, this moment here in Jacob's life, he says it, it depicts the two steps forward and the one step back reality of our growth and holiness. Unlike justification, God's once for all declaration that we are righteous in his sight, sanctification is a process. And sometimes, like, like Jacob, our, our former selves rise up in our pursuit of righteousness. Church, this is the experience of the Christian. Our growth, our, our sanctification, it is dynamic. It's a process. We can have a good week, and the next week we find ourselves thinking, what happened to all that growth and that progress that we made? And sometimes that baggage of our old life comes over that hill, threatening to undo us. But here's the thing, church. Here's what Genesis 33 is mainly about. God is gracious to us. He is faithful to work in our lives. He blesses us when we trust him, and when we don't fully trust him, he is gracious with us. He is patient with us. And sometimes, there are weeks where it feels like it's, it's mostly just steps backwards, right? And not steps forward. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed by the baggage of our past. Sometimes there's an army of 400 coming over the hill toward us. But we do not despair in these things because we know who our God is, which is what Genesis 33 is showing us. And as we continue in our story this morning, we see a beautiful picture of who God is in the amazing way that he graciously works in our lives. And so this leads us to point two. The miraculous mercy of God. Returning now to the beginning of this chapter, we, we see Jacob preparing for what very well may be the death of himself and his family. After 20 years, 
20 years of Esau's anger brewing and planning how he's going to kill his brother, the moment has finally arrived. And now an army of 400 men coming straight towards Jacob. And by all indications, this might be the end. And as Esau approaches, Jacob bows down before him, humbling himself in this last resort, pleading for mercy from the vengeance that is surely about to rain down on him. And then verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Friends, if you have been with us through this series in Genesis, this moment should stand out to you as one of the most beautiful moments in this book so far. Think back on the past 32 chapters. It's been just filled with broken relationships. It's been stories of betrayal and deceit and abuse and revenge. And and yes, God has been at work being gracious and working through his people in the midst of their brokenness. But as far as human relationships go, it's mostly just been ugliness and hurt. But here in chapter 33, for the first time in this long story of relational brokenness, we see forgiveness. And it is a beautiful moment. But again, it's, it's also a surprising moment, isn't it? I mean, I mean, what is happening here? This is a huge plot twist in the book of Genesis. Esau has an army of 400 men. You don't bring an army of 400 men to a family reunion. You bring an army of 400 men to battle. And again, from the last chapter, we saw that that was the reason Esau had these men. It was to bring vengeance upon, his, upon Jacob. He had set out with these men to kill his brother. But when they meet, instead of Esau running out with a sword, he runs out with tears in his arms, in his eyes, and his arms open to embrace his brother, and they weep together. What a beautiful thing this is. 20 years of anger and plans for vengeance and the time finally comes to carry this out. Instead, he forgives him. And this leads us to the question, why is he doing this? Because nothing has changed, right? Last chapter, he's planning to kill his brother. This chapter, he's all total forgiveness. There's one, there's only one answer that I can think of to explain this change. And we're going to look at this in more detail in the next Point, But the short answer is, it is the miraculous mercy of God. Back in chapter 32, Jacob pleads with God to save him from his brother. He says, God, you have promised to be faithful to me. Even though I do not deserve it, you have vowed to be for my family and to provide for my family, to make us a great nation. But Esau is coming with vengeance to wipe us out. And if you do not intervene, We are finished. So Jacob prays to God. In in chapter 32, verse 11, he says, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother. And church, God hears this prayer. And he answers it. Once again, we see the Lord providing for Jacob. We see the Lord again prove himself to be trustworthy and to be faithful. God's mercy is so clear in these brothers' reconciliation. 
Think about this reconciliation. It's almost unbelievable, almost unthinkable. Last chapter, he's coming to wipe Esau out. This chapter, his heart has changed. The only explanation is that God heard Jacob's prayer and he mercifully intervened. And the, the beauty of this moment cannot be easily overstated. Because there are few things in this life that are harder or that are more difficult than forgiveness. It is hard to ask for forgiveness. And it is hard to offer forgiveness. And this has always been true, right? I mean, wars have been started throughout history because reconciliation was impossible. Marriages are destroyed by lack of forgiveness. Friendships turn into distant, bitter memories because we aren't able to admit when we're wrong and we aren't able to deal when wrong is done against us. I think it's fair to say that lack of forgiveness is one of the greatest problems in our society. It's not a new thing, right? And it permeates all of life. It affects workplaces and homes, governments. It's all over social media, and it affects churches. Christians are not immune from the difficulty of forgiveness and the devastating effects that difficulty of reconciliation can have. And I don't, I don't think the main idea of this passage is about Esau's forgiveness, but I, I do think that there are lessons for us here this morning. I imagine that there are people in this room for whom forgiveness and reconciliation needs to happen. Maybe it's something that has pushed your marriage to the brink of divorce. Maybe it's bitterness between a coworker over hurt words that were said. It was a brother or sister that you had a fight with in the car on the way to church this morning. These are, these are hard moments in life. And oftentimes when we are in the middle of them, forgiveness and reconciliation seems like the most difficult thing in the world. There have been moments in my life where, where like Esau, I know that I should forgive someone. Or like Jacob, I know that I should be the one asking for forgiveness. And some of these moments have been some of the most significant internal battles of my soul. And I doubt that I'm alone in that. But church, when we read stories like this in Genesis, I see that there is hope for us. That hope is found only in the mercy of God. The story of Jacob and Esau and their reconciliation, as, as beautiful as it is, it points towards something even better. And this brings us to our third point, which is the gospel of forgiveness. Many of us know the, the story of, of Jim Elliott, who is the missionary um, to uh, overseas in Ecuador. And Jim spent three years of his life preparing for this missionary journey to a particular area and to a particular tribe called the Alcus. This tribe was, was known for their, for their violence and they had been known to, to have killed many outsiders who had come into their village. And despite this, this danger, uh, Elliot journeyed to this area. Both in just days of arriving on the beach near this village, uh, villagers came out and attacked Elliot and his party. And in this, in this skirmish um, that happened quickly, Elliot and all of his party were killed speared to death on the beaches outside of this village. But the amazing part of this story is that it didn't end there. Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's wife, years later, with her daughter, returned to this village and befriended these people and shared the gospel with them 
and became friends even with a man who had speared to death her husband. And to the end of their lives, they were dear friends with one another. I love stories like this. I think we all love stories like this. These are so amazing because they seem so impossible, right? And our story here in Genesis is one of those stories that that seems to be just so surprising in the reconciliation that happened, right? Jacob and Esau meet. Instead of battle, there is embrace. There is forgiveness. This reunion that was supposed to end in bloodshed ended in tears of reconciliation. And so I want to look further now into our text and return to that question of how did this happen? We know that God was at work here, but we also maybe think that maybe it was Jacob's humility and the gifts that he had given to Jacob that won him over. Remember in that last chapter, Jacob had sent this, this large convoy of, of, of animals ahead of him to Esau as kind of this uh, last-ditch effort to appease his brother before they would meet in person. Perhaps he thought that if he just gives a large enough gift that maybe then that would win over his brother. But surprisingly... Esau forgives Jacob and doesn't want anything in return. It says in verses 8 and 9, Esau says, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered him, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau says, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And it is right here in this conversation that we get a look at the work that God has done to bring about reconciliation. When Esau says, I have enough, my brother, keep what you have for yourself, what an incredible offer that is. Remember, Jacob stole his birthright. He stole his honor. He stole his wealth. He stole his position in the family. Jacob had deceived Esau and had stolen from him the life that he wanted. And to forgive Jacob meant that Esau was releasing his brother from the debt that he owed. And he was inviting him back into relationship with himself. But that was a costly thing for him to do, right? He didn't get his revenge. He didn't get back what was his. He didn't get the, he, he, he didn't require that everything was to be made right. And this is why forgiveness is so hard, right? Because in, in moments like this, what we want to say is we want to say, you must repay me. You must find a way to make this right. And in the the darker places of our hearts, we often say, I want you to suffer because of the wrong that you have done. That's how we naturally want to respond when we are wronged, right? That's why it's so hard to forgive somebody. Forgiveness requires us to say, you have wronged me, but I am willing to receive you back even if it costs me my opportunity for revenge. If it costs me my opportunity to demand repayment. If it costs me the opportunity to harbor bitterness in my heart against you. There's something about this type of forgiveness that is costly to the person doing the forgiving. I mean, for for Esau, we remember Jacob stole everything from him. But it seems that God, in his mercy, miraculously intervened and softened his heart and turned it away from anger. We aren't told exactly how this intervention happened, but God clearly did something in Esau that freed him to say to Jacob, I have enough. 
I do not demand that you repay me. I'm content to not have my revenge. I want you back. Now, church, in the end, we don't know where Esau stood with the Lord. I don't know or even think that necessarily he was trying to honor God through his forgiveness. Maybe he just wanted his brother back. Either way, we can, we can certainly admire what Esau did for Jacob. But what we do know is that for those of us who have been changed by the gospel, we have all the more reason to be a forgiving people. Because we have seen in much greater ways the mercy of God. And this gets to the real heart of the story. See, on the surface, this story seems to be mostly about reconciliation between Esau and Jacob. But the deeper truth of this passage reveals a God who is gracious to us, who longs to be reconciled to us, even when we are undeserving of it. There's a story in the New Testament that bears a a striking resemblance to our passage here in Genesis 33. And that's the story of the prodigal son, which many of us, I'm sure, are familiar with. And for time's sake, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but let me summarize for you the story of the prodigal son. It's a story about a son who, who went and asked his father if he could have his inheritance early while his father was still living. And his father graciously gives it to him. And then his son leaves his father and goes off and squanders this inheritance and this money. And he winds up with nothing. He finds himself poor and homeless and on the verge of of death. And so with with no other choice now, the the son is forced to, to humble himself and to crawl back to his father whom he had abandoned and dishonored. In the story, the son is thinking that, that at best, maybe his father will have enough mercy on him and at least just allow him to be a servant or a slave in the household. But the beauty of this story is that the father sees his son from a distance, reluctantly coming towards him, and the father runs out to meet him, throws his arms around him, and in this great joy throws a celebration that his son has returned. This is a wonderful story, and it's the story that depicts God's heart towards us. Because it's the story of each one of us. We we all are that prodigal son. We have rejected the love of the Father. We have squandered the life that God has given us. We are unworthy to be called His children and to know His love. But the beauty of the gospel is that when we come to God in humility, just like, just like Jacob came to Esau, just like the prodigal son came to his father, when we do this, God runs to meet us. He embraces us. He welcomes us into his family. And the thing that is most freeing about God's mercy towards us is that it requires nothing from us in order to be loved and accepted by him. In the story of the prodigal son, he has nothing, and yet the father runs out to embrace him. Jacob seeks to repay his brother for the wrong that he has done, but Esau says no payment is needed. And these are pictures of the wonderful, unmerited favor that we receive when we come to Jesus. And God's heart for us is that we would rejoice in this mercy and grace which is actually a hard thing to do, right? Because we want to earn it. 
Maybe you're here this morning and, and you've been living this, this week trying to offer something to God to earn his forgiveness. Like, like Jacob, sending this offering ahead, assuming that grace must be earned. We think that if we can just clean up this one area of my life, or maybe if we, if we, if we live good in this one way, or, or maybe we can, we can remove ourselves far enough away from the baggage and the sins and the mistakes of my path, that then God will be for me. Then God will bless me. It's, it's hard for us to really think any other way than this, right? The story of the prodigal son, there's, there's actually a second son, and he gets angry at his father for the mercy that he shows his brother. He is appalled at his father's mercy. Because in order to be forgiven, surely you must have to pay, right? You must have to make up for the wrong that you have done. But church, our offerings to God, they accomplish nothing in earning his acceptance. We are unable to pay our debts. We are unworthy to come before him, and yet God is willing to forgive us. And not just to forgive us, church. God runs to us. He embraces us. God celebrates his relationship with you this morning. And how can that be so? Why does God so graciously forgive us and seek reconciliation with us? He has a reason, church. And it's not just that God has forgotten about your sin. His word makes it very clear that because of the wrong that we have done, we deserve his wrath and his justice. So God does not just decide to, to forget about our sin and just let everything slide. His, his holiness and his righteousness actually demand that a penalty be paid for our sin. That is a real serious problem for us. And there's nothing that we can do about it. But church, the wondrous news of the gospel is that Jesus has done something about it. He paid our debt. He bore the Father's wrath that we deserve. Christ gave his life on the cross so that now when we come before God, he does not meet us with an army. He does not meet us with a sword. He does not bring his wrath. Instead, he brings his mercy he meets us with open arms. He embraces us. He calls us friend. And even more than that, even more than friend, he calls us sons and daughters. And knowing this heart of God towards us is a transforming thing, church. It gives us confidence to come boldly before God in worship this morning. It compels us to rejoice. And, and, and God does not want us to come timidly before him hesitantly, unsure of the type of response that we're going to get from him. We don't have to wonder, is God going to be cold to me this morning because of my past? Is he going to be withholding? Is he going to be angry with me because of my sin this week? No. The story of Esau and Jacob, the story of the prodigal son, they are beautiful pictures of not only how God treats us, but how God feels about us. God is genuinely eager to have relationship with you this morning. He is eager to embrace us as sons and daughters. Which means that we can come before God as we are this morning, church. We do not have to clean ourselves up before we approach him. 
don't have to hide our sin from God. We can cry out to him and know that he hears us and he is for us. And friends, having this type of access to God's grace and mercy should make us the most free and joyous people in the world. It should cause our hearts to worship. And this freedom should, should transform the way that we relate to one another. And, and, and this, is, this is where I want to end here this morning with a, with a quick point of application. With a reminder that we are called to be a people who rejoice that we are reconciled to God and then pursue reconciliation with one another. In our story this morning, it is, the, it is the mercy of God and his gracious forgiveness that makes possible this reconciliation between these brothers. And church, we are called and equipped towards the very same thing. God blesses Jacob. He assures him of his provision. He gives him everything he needs. And in confidence, Jacob boldly goes before his brother. He is freed to humble himself and to seek forgiveness. He, he does not have to hide his sin. And church, we are called to do the same. Except church, let's not take 20 years to do so. Let us humble ourselves quickly and pursue these things. Let us be a people who are quick to ask for forgiveness. And let us also be quick to be the one who forgives. Church, Esau wasn't even a follower of God. But he was moved enough by God's mercy to let go of his anger. And how much more should we who have Christ, who have been given everything we need, who have been forgiven so much, how can we not all the more so be a people who forgive? There's a moment in verse, in verse 10 when Jacob was forgiven and he said to his brother Esau that to see you is like seeing the face of God. Meaning that to be forgiven to be reconciled to another person is a moment such that it points towards the grace and the mercy that we have received from God. What a sweet thing reconciliation is, church. What a display it is of God's grace and his mercy. What an act of worship it actually is. This is, this is why we are called to pursue it. And church, I say this knowing that forgiveness and reconciliation can often be a very tricky thing, right? Often there are people in our lives who, who we may want their forgiveness, but they are, they are distant, they are out of the picture. Or maybe there are people who have harmed us, but they have no desire to pursue reconciliation. Maybe there are ways that you have been hurt that make it hard to know what reconciliation should even look like, Right? These situations are hard. They often require discernment. And, and church, if, you would, if you're walking through something like this and would like prayer, and would like to talk through this, we would love to do that with you. After the message, find myself, find Joel, find a fellowship group leader. Let us pray for you and talk through these things together. But church, if at all possible, we want to pursue forgiveness and reconciliation, especially within the body of Christ especially within our family of believers. And in many ways, church, our pursuit of reconciliation is an act of worship because we are able to do this first and foremost when we rejoice in the fact that Christ has forgiven us. We have experienced his undeserving grace and mercy. 
And so above all, we have reason to forgive and to be reconciled and to worship God who shows us mercy and helps us to show mercy. God's a merciful God. He shows mercy towards undeserving sinners. And this should cause us to worship. In a moment, church, I'm going to pray to close this out. And then we're going to sing together. And we're going to sing a song called His Mercy is More. When we sing this song, church, when we share in communion together, let us do so with rejoicing in our hearts, prayerfully acknowledging what God has done for us and delight in Him this morning. Let me pray for us.